Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 60, Skylab 4, Part 2, The Final Stretch. Last time, we met the third and final crew to travel to America's first space station. Commander Jerry Carr, science pilot Ed Gibson, and pilot Bill Pogue were an all-rookie crew who were finally getting their chance to fly. Following in the footsteps of Skylab 2 and Skylab 3, Skylab 4 was poised to break all previous spaceflight records. With a 28-day flight and a 59-day flight completed successfully, NASA was preparing the Skylab 4 crew for a potential 84-day flight. After some minor fixes on the launch vehicle and a slightly troublesome docking, Carr, Gibson, and Pogue arrived at their orbital home on November 16, 1973, ready to get to work. As we learned last time, things didn't quite go as smoothly as hoped. The systems were working just fine, well, maybe not fine, but good enough, but there was a growing friction between the crew and ground-based mission controllers. An early bout of space sickness led to schedule slippage, and the crew was having difficulty catching up. Always mindful of the open nature of their radio link to the ground, the crew was hesitant to say what was really on their minds and tried to just grit their teeth and get through the work. Baffled by the apparent laziness or ineptitude of this new crew, Mission Control responded with ever more detailed daily schedules. Maybe they just needed a little more guidance. The Skylab 3 crew wasn't like this. By the end of their mission, they were acting like a well-oiled machine. Why wasn't this brand new crew, at the very start of a marathon-like mission, performing to the same standards? Well, eventually a line was crossed, and if you were to pop Skylab 4 into your internet search engine of choice, chances are it wouldn't take long for you to stumble across an article discussing the well-known Skylab mutiny. These articles will tell you how the crew became fed up with the overbearing mission controllers and decided to go on strike. As punishment for this insubordination, none of these three men flew in space again. Okay, I'm just going to get this out of the way right now. This is all bunk. It's not hard to find sources that will disagree with me, but after my own research, I'm sticking to that conclusion. The mutiny simply never happened. First, I'll tell you what the legend of the mutiny says, and then I'll tell you what actually happened. According to spaceflight lore, the ever-overworked Skylab 4 crew finally hit a breaking point on December 28, 1973. They had been in orbit for 42 days, half of their planned duration, and had been under extreme pressure for that entire time. A heartless or oblivious mission control were working them to the bone, and they were done. The crew announced to the ground that they were taking a day off, switched off the radios, and enjoyed themselves by reading books and looking out the windows. Afterwards, the crew and mission control hashed it out and arrived at a new schedule structure that could accommodate the needs of both groups, but as punishment, all three men were banned from future spaceflights. It's an appealing story. The harried crew generates sympathy from the audience. In their moment of victory, they realize that they hold the power. They take control into their own hands and show Houston who's boss. And in the end, everyone reconciles and makes things better. I like this story. It's just not true. As is typical with misremembered history, setting the record straight is a little messy. So let's break this down into a few parts. First, as we've discussed extensively, the crew was overworked and there was growing friction with Houston, so the setup is plausible. Second, the crew actually did take a day off. 
In fact, best as I can tell from my non-professional research, this day off is where several of the quotes attributed to the mutiny actually came from. The crew spent their day reading books and enjoying the view out the windows. Aha! I hear mutiny truthers exclaiming, that settles it! But no, this was a scheduled reprieve. No more a mutiny than a weekend is a strike. The crew had the occasional day to themselves. It's just that all three missions typically worked through most or all of their day off in order to catch up on their backlog. After skipping a few such days off, the Skylab 4 crew realized that their pace wasn't sustainable and insisted on actually taking their scheduled time to unwind. And to their credit, they still got some work done. For example, Ed Gibson still manned the ATM, just taking it at his own pace. Third is an incident that I've only heard of via interviews with the crew, so this one is maybe a little shakier if you're inclined to believe that they're covering something up. According to the crew, in an attempt to be more efficient, they would take turns handling all the radio traffic from the ground. That way, two guys could really concentrate on what they were doing, and a third would put up with the occasional radio call. Well, it seems that due to a miscommunication, a handoff was bungled, and for a whole orbit, no one was on the radio. All three men were under the impression that someone else was handling Houston and went about their business. Due to the nature of the ground track, entire orbits with no contact weren't super unusual, but Houston was obviously a little concerned when nobody answered their hails. If this happened as described, then it was a harmless, if worrisome event. But also keep in mind that an orbit is only about an hour and a half, not a full day. I don't think it's that big of a stretch to imagine these stories getting out into the general public or press, likely in bits and pieces and missing context. I also don't think it's that big of a stretch that if a reporter asked questions about this, NASA might brush the whole thing off as a non-event, not realizing the new context that was being put together from the outside. So it doesn't surprise me that this story might have been written in the first place. Sadly, what also doesn't surprise me is that a story as juicy as this one was just too good to die and too good for facts. With first newspaper articles and then business case studies and eventually well-intentioned space blogs and streamers, the exciting story gets retold and lives on. Here's the thing, though. I dug up the air-to-ground transcripts, all 5,000 or so pages of them. And I went to the date in question, and I read all of it, noting timestamps as I went. I even went a few hours into the day before and the day after in case the date was off just by one. What did I find? Nothing. Completely routine stuff. In fact, the only thing that seemed really unusual to me was a nice conversation with Dr. Kahutek, the discoverer of the comet the crew was studying. I didn't read every line of every day of Skylab 4's stay, but I'll tell you one thing. For a day that the crew supposedly switched off the radio and goofed off all day, they sure were on the radio a whole lot and getting a bunch of work done. What actually did happen was eventually the desire of the crew to fix a clearly broken situation overcame their reluctance to hash it out with mission control over a radio link that anyone could listen to. The crew listed what they were frustrated with and then asked the ground to list their frustrations, which they did on the next orbital pass. What resulted were some relatively minor but critical tweaks that made the remainder of the mission go much more smoothly. First, no more major activities were scheduled after dinner. That was the crew's time to unwind, take care of a few odds and ends, and prepare for the day to come. Second, the crew was given more agency. 
In a well-meaning attempt to help them out, the ground was micromanaging the crew. Three guys who were extremely disciplined and focused and didn't like just rushing from one predetermined task to the next. Instead, activities that didn't actually require a specific time would be placed on a so-called shopping list. Whenever the crew found themselves with spare time, they could look at the list, grab something to do, and get it done. The difference was that they chose when to do it, based on what made sense during day-to-day life aboard the station. There's a lot of little stuff that's obvious to a person in the situation, but that might slip by a team of people planning a schedule. For example, the crew weren't likely to schedule an exercise period immediately after eating. A little agency goes a long way. The changes made a huge improvement to productivity and morale. Who knew? Open and honest communication really does make a difference. Since it seems that we've gotten things all sorted out with the crew, let's check back in on their spacecraft. Things actually aren't so great here. I didn't mention it last time, but during the first spacewalk of the mission, back on November 22nd, Skylab lost one of its three control moment gyroscopes. These are big spinning devices that harness the power of torque and inertia to allow changes in attitude without expending limited fuel. Getting into the math of attitude control, especially with CMGs, is well beyond the scope of this podcast, but essentially these devices allowed Skylab to point where it wanted to by only using electricity, which can be collected from the solar panels. Losing one out of three wasn't a huge deal, but it meant that there was no more redundancy. Losing a second CMG would force the crew to switch the thrusters for attitude control, which would severely limit the duration of the mission. But don't worry, CMG-1 is down, but CMG-2 is doing just fine, and the odds of losing a second one were... Come on. Yeah, you guessed it. CMG-2 is starting to hurt now as well. At first, it was just a couple little hiccups here and there. The spin rate of the gyro would slow down a little and then recover. Nothing crazy. But then it started happening more often. Before long, it required increasingly frequent manual intervention from Mission Control to keep CMG-2 happy and healthy. Skylab 4 wanted to go the distance, but it would only be possible with at least two functioning CMGs. In an effort to nurse the ailing gyroscope across the finish line, some activities were curtailed. There was trivial stuff like no more running around the walls like a giant hamster wheel, but also some serious ramifications. Operating the EREP Earth-Observing Experiments required rotating the entire Skylab structure to face the Earth, and then slowly match the pace of the space station's movement around the planet. With the strain this would place on CMG-2 and the use of attitude control fuel they might need later, EREP experiments were cut back. Adding to their attitude control woes was a bulky star tracker. A star tracker is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's basically a specialized camera that looks for stars. By comparing the pattern of stars that it sees against a known set of stars, it can determine which way it's pointed with incredible accuracy. However, Skylab's star tracker had been degrading over time, and it wasn't helped by the fact that so many random little bits were shed by the actively crewed space station that there were many false stars to be seen. Eventually, the crew had no choice but to supplement the star tracker themselves using, and you gotta love this, Sextants. Our ocean-bound ancestors would be proud. Rolling forward again, back to where we left off, it was time for EVA-3. On December 29th, 
nice and refreshed from their mutiny the day before. Oh, no, wait, we covered that. On December 29th, Carr and Gibson opened the Gemini-era door on the airlock module and headed outside. This shorter EVA only rang in at about three and a half hours, and focused on Comet Kahutek, fresh from its brush with the sun at Perihelion. While out there, Carr and Gibson also performed some experiments that were originally intended for the sun-facing scientific airlock that was now occupied by the parasol and window shade. Capturing the dim comet on film proved to be a little troublesome, but the crew sketched their impressions when they came back inside. They even captured the faint anti-tail sticking out the front of the comet, which they described as beak-like in appearance. This is an optical illusion that, if I've got this right, is the distant tail of the comet, but due to its curved path and movement, it looks like it's poking out the front. I kind of imagined it like watching a car drift 180 degrees around a corner, and then seeing its nose eventually pointed back the direction it came from, but with the smoke trail behind it. Which I guess makes the comet a cool race car? I don't know. Two days later, on December 30th, slash Mission Day 45, the crew and Mission Control had their big discussion about schedule issues. Sorry, I know I've gotten the timelines a little mixed up all over the place here, but it's sort of tough when dealing with fictional events. But I wanted to make sure I got the actual date in there, December 30th, Mission Day 45. On January 21st, Ed Gibson was operating the Apollo telescope mount and keeping a close eye on the sun. Something caught his eye, and he put his years of solar and plasma physics experience to use when he realized a flare was just starting right before his eyes. He threw the full suite of ATM instruments into gear and captured the flare's creation. It was a tough judgment call, since if he was wrong, he'd waste a lot of film on some pretty but useless pictures of the sun. Instead, he captured the full life cycle of a solar flare from orbit for the first time. It was a huge contribution to heliophysics and definitely goes in the Skylab highlight reel. Another event that took place in early 1974, and probably made a lot fewer people happy on the ground, was when one of the Skylab 4 crew members took a photo that they shouldn't have. Which is impressive, because as I understand it, while they were discouraged from taking photos of sensitive areas in the Soviet Union, in line with their civilian mission, there was only one place that they were straight up instructed to not take photos of a little place known as Homey Airport. Never heard of it? It's right in the middle of Groom Lake. Still not ringing a bell? How about this? Area 51. I bet in that moment just now, a whole bunch of things clicked into place and thoughts involving space, aliens, conspiracies, and NASA all rushed into your head. Well, put those all aside, because just like the mutiny myth, I'm channeling my inner Mythbuster today. Area 51 has nothing to do with all of that nonsense. We really keep the aliens over at the Goddard Space Flight Center in Building 36... You know what, let's just stay on topic. The facility popularly known as Area 51 is a highly classified site where top-secret technology is tested. But rather than testing captured alien UFOs, they're testing stuff like captured Russian fighter jets, or stealth planes and spy planes, and all sorts of fascinating but down-to-earth stuff or at least down-to-air stuff. The crew were asked to not take photos of the facility, since NASA photos are all publicly available, and it would create a headache for the folks who wanted to keep their secret test site secret. The facility would have been familiar to the test pilot crew members, even if it was just as that big area in the desert where we're not supposed to go. So it should have been simple to avoid, but figuring out precisely where you are from orbit isn't always the easiest thing, and the photo was taken. 
Luckily for the shadowy forces of secrecy, they had already arranged to screen photos taken by the astronauts. So at the end of the day, not much happened other than some feathers getting ruffled, but at least we got a cool story out of it. By the way, if you want to see what Area 51 looks like from space, there's no need to start hunting for secret Skylab photos. These days you can just check it out on Google Earth. As 56 days came and went, the crew was still in good shape, and their spacecraft was in good enough shape, so they got the green light for the first week of their extended mission. The crew was happy, healthy, and getting good work done. CMG2 was still hurting, but the closer the crew got to the 84-day mark, the less concern there was about it failing. They could always switch to the tax attitude control thrusters to cover a few days at the end. On mission day 80, it was time for the last EVA of Skylab, and the last EVA of the Apollo era. I chuckled when one of the older sources that I use, written just a few years into the shuttle program, called it, quote, what history would record as the last EVA performed by American astronauts with a ballistic spacecraft, the final spacewalk of the old era, when men blasted forth from the Florida beach on expendable rockets and one-shot space vehicles, end quote. Well, we're back to ballistic spacecraft, but at least some of the launch vehicles are reusable. Once again, Jerry Carr and Ed Gibson climbed outside and got to work. The main task of this EVA was to retrieve the ATM film one last time. No real need to replace it this time. They also retrieved some experiments related to exposure to space and set a few more out, just in case another mission was in the cards, after all, a few years down the line. They also tested a new system of passing the film canisters down from the ATM using a clothesline-like system instead of the usual long pole. Something that caught my eye about this test was Ed Gibson got a little tangled up in the clothesline and it actually popped his umbilical out. Rather than instant death, the suit's backup oxygen kicked in as coolant sprayed out of the umbilical. Gibson quickly got reconnected, but it must have been a pretty scary moment, especially because I'm pretty sure that was his main tether to the station. Yikes, don't do something crazy on the last EVA, guys. After 5 hours and 19 minutes outside, they closed the hatch, and that was it for the Skylab spacewalks. In the final days, the Skylab 4 crew prepared for departure. In the hopes that the upcoming space shuttle might one day visit the station, more on that later, they used the RCS thrusters on the Apollo CSM to boost the whole structure into a higher orbit. That way, it should take about 8 years or so for the thin atmosphere to finally bring it back to Earth. They also gathered an assortment of items and left them in a large plastic bag just inside the hatch in the MDA as a sort of time capsule. Skylab would be depressurized once they left, so if another mission arrived years later, it would be interesting to study how the materials in the bag held up. On February 8, 1974, 1.15 a.m. Houston time, Jerry Carr and Bill Pogue floated into the command module, and Ed Gibson became the last astronaut aboard Skylab, opening the interior hatches behind him. Once in the command module, he buttoned up the exterior hatch, and Skylab was empty again. A few hours later, they undocked and performed a fly-around, taking 75 photos of the station, the last that would ever be taken. Capcom Bob Crippen radioed up, Say goodbye for us, she's been a good bird. And the response came down, it's been a good home, Crip. After backing away and performing their deorbit burn, the crew of Skylab 4 had one last moment of excitement. 
they jettisoned the service module and prepared to rotate the command module to entry attitude when nothing happened. The controls were unresponsive. If they couldn't get to the proper entry attitude, the spacecraft would settle on one of two stable positions. Heat shield down or nose down. They needed to get spun around. Now. Luckily, the folks who designed the Apollo command module, over a decade ago now, included a manual override. If you moved the hand controller all the way over, it would bypass all the electronics and just send the command directly to the thrusters. And that worked. Entry proceeded with no problems after that. It turns out that the crew actually did this to themselves. When the service module and command module are separated, the bundle of wires connecting them is sliced with a sort of high-tech guillotine. Since there was concern about short circuits during this time, Carr intended to pull the RCS circuit breakers for the service module. But since he hadn't been in a command module in three months and hadn't exactly been training, he mixed up the two panels in the cramped dark region where they're located. The thought that skills may diminish because there's no training during the actual mission hadn't occurred to me, so I thought this minor incident was pretty interesting. After 84 days... One hour, 15 minutes, and 31 seconds, Skylab 4 splashed down in the Pacific Ocean, their mission complete. The spacecraft was recovered with the crew inside and gently set down on the USS New Orleans about 40 minutes later. It seems that all the extra exercise the crew was determined to do paid off, since all three men were able to walk across the ship's deck under their own power, despite the record-setting duration of the flight. Within weeks, all three were back to normal. One thing that may have caught your attention is that for Jerry Carr, Ed Gibson, and Bill Pogue, Skylab 4 was their one and only flight. This is especially interesting when combined with the narrative of a difficult or problematic crew who, according to legend, disobeyed orders from the ground. It could seem like a punishment. In fact, in most tellings I've seen of the so-called Skylab mutiny, it's explicitly mentioned as a punishment for insubordination. Here's the truth, though. You might be expecting me to say, ha, myth busted, never happened. But there's honestly no way to know. In the past, there have absolutely been cases where an astronaut was blackballed from future flights without being explicitly or publicly disciplined. Look no further than Mercury 7 astronaut Scott Carpenter. So if someone in the NASA management decided these guys were never going to fly again, we likely never would have heard about it. That said, I don't think it happened. I think they never flew again for the same reason lots of astronauts in that period retired from NASA. There were no flights for a really long time, these guys are super driven, and they had lives and careers outside of being an astronaut. When they landed in early 1974, the first space shuttle flight was still seven years away. And these guys would not be on the first flight. Even without the eventual delays, the first flight was still expected to be at least four years away. And anyone who's worked in aerospace knows that projects tend to slip to the right on the timeline. So first Gibson, later in 1974, and then Pogue in 1975, and finally Carr in 1977, all left NASA to pursue other interests. Gibson actually returned in 1977, but since he was interested in space station work and knew that any station would be years off in the future, he eventually retired from being an astronaut for good in 1982. So, I don't think any of these guys were punished. Why would Ed Gibson be welcomed back just a few years later if they weren't happy with his performance on Skylab? 
I think it's another spaceflight legend that I'm happy to say never happened. At least I don't think so. Skylab 4 was a notable mission for the remarkable science it accomplished, for the records it broke, and for marking an important turning point in how the ground and crews worked together. And now it's in the history books, and with it, the crude portion of Skylab's life. But we're not quite ready to say farewell to it yet. We still have a few odds and ends to cover. Next time, we'll look at Skylab's lasting impact, the potential follow-up missions, and even a hypothetical space shuttle flight to Skylab. We'll also introduce the last mission between us and that big white space plane, a mission that bridged the gap between two enemies and ended the first volume of the space race, the Apollo-Soyuz test project. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.